Hello and welcome to Can't Find My Way Home, the podcast where expats from around the globe talk about the music and art scene in their adopted home. I'm your host, Craig. In this episode of Can't Find My Way Home, I was joined by Russ Vandenberg from his home in Valencia. We started our conversation with Russ explaining why he moved to Spain, and we both get to share our feelings on the B word, you know, Brexit. Russ shares his musical background and how he got into the clarinet, then the saxophone as a teenager. We get into creativity and being dysfunctional, the scary nature of jazz as a genre, and Russie's academic background which led him to a professorship at Trinity College London at just 25 years old. We talk wokeness, cancel culture and education, what you can expect from the music scene in Valencia, and why it's such an inspirational place for Russ. Taking risks as a musician, what goes into a practice routine, and a really fun top five. All this and the importance of having shiny shoes. Let's get right to it. Russ Vandenberg. <laughs> Just random choice, to be honest. <laughs> it really was. Um, what happened was, because I, I'm from England, Brexit was announced. That was very difficult for a lot of people in England to accept that that was going to happen, that we were going to leave the EU. And at that point in my life as well, I'd gone around the country God, no, just too many times for me to be yet again sat behind the steering wheel of my car on the motorway thinking I'm doing this trip again and again and again from one gig to the next and the next and the next. And, you know, my work was around the country a lot. And um, I thought there's got to be more to life than this. And not to say that I, I hated or had any, you know, begrudging feeling against the music that I was involved in. But I felt like I really wanted to stretch out because I was just seemed to be labelled into jazz and, and a certain type of jazz music as a saxophone player. And I, 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 I just was busting to wanting to do something else. I just wanted to explore music. So Brexit happened and I thought, oh, I'm out of here, man. You know, I'm out of it. I got a Dutch passport and I left and it was very scary for me. But, I, but then I thought to myself, well, where do I want to go? And I literally went on Google Maps, looked at, our side of Europe bit. Well, Europe. <laughs> Not Eastern Europe, but Europe, Western Europe. The, the closest just, bit to where you were at the time. Yeah, yeah, the most cl- close. Yeah, actually, it's true. The most closest bit where I can know I can travel back to see my family, you know. And so I just went, I'm going to go there because it's halfway in between Spain and it's on the Mediterranean. And that was it. I packed a bag and I just came here. And I, I got in my car and I drove down here and, and the rest is history, literally. This was about 2016, was it at the time of the Brexit vote or the Brexit announcement? It was the announcement that it had been, that we're leaving Europe. Oh, right. That that was 20, yeah, 2016. It took me about six months to prepare everything to come here. And so I I think it was 17 when I arrived. Right. So, I mean, what what was the whole point of that exercise anyway? I mean, it was just a futile exercise in ego massaging the, the ruling party at the time or still... To this day, the ruling party in the UK, it seems to have caused more harm than good and more division than I know, I know. bringing things together. Maybe that was the whole point. I don't know. I mean, I have no idea. 
It's just oh, it's Tories crazy. are assholes. I think we can agree agree on this. Oh well, that, there we go. We've broken the ice <laughs> on that. You know, we break the ice. yeah. I mean, it, you know, Cameron, he had what was it a bill to pay from the EU, and it was a lot. He didn't want to dip into the treasury, and so he put the the, the vote of whether they should leave or not to the people, and and then Boris spun it out of control gave him too many promises, and then there was no realistic foresight on what would happen. And they just went along with his notion, thinking, yeah, this will get us elected again, and this, certain the other, basically. That's what happened. That, that, it's thanks to Cameron. <laughs> well, now you've seen the kind of tip of the iceberg, right? How, yeah, yeah. How things are in the UK. You were there uh, fairly recently, and I was there for a good bit uh, last year as well. And, yeah, they're just... It was just a bit of a disaster, really, and you know, to be to to be mild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sad. It's upsetting. Yeah, yeah. You were speaking about getting a Dutch passport, then. So you have a Dutch parentage, or through your grandparents. What what's the connection? Yeah, there? yeah. I mean, my 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 mum's English. My dad's Dutch. I was born in England, but at the age of five, I was raised in Holland, and then at the age of twelve, uh, they, they came back to England, and I was like, hang on a minute. What? what? <laughs> <laughs> I've I've just been reading to learn and write Dutch, and now I've got to start all over again in English. <laughs> and <thanks>. so, <laughs> yeah, I was like, do I get any say in this? No, right here we go. You know, get in the car. So, you know. Yeah, get in. <laughs> did you told him? It was it was it was um it was a culture shock. <laughs> it was a culture shock. But through that culture shock, you know, um, I rebelled. Obviously, as a teenage boy. And I got myself into a lot of trouble when I started that English school, uh, um, that school in England. And, but I, I knew I knew I had to sort of, I had to calm down, I had to focus all that energy and that whatever it was teenage angst, yeah, angst and confusion about everything. So um, my dad had a clarinet, and I went All right, let me play that. And he was like, No, no, you're not going to play that because you can't. And I was like, What? And I, I had to beg my dad for months months to, 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 to give me one lesson on the clarinet and I think it was the, the reverse psychology that he was doing to me was actually my first music lesson all right how old were you about this time when you picked up this so it was a clarinet you picked up first yeah I was 14 and was it uh, an instant match or was it uh it's not the easiest thing to pick up and just start playing right it's no, and I didn't pick it up and start playing it either. I mean, that first lesson I had with my dad, he sat me down on a chair, told me how to hold it, told me what to do with my mouth, and he told me to play one note, an E. And I was like, "Is more than it, more than this, <laughs> you know." It's not very sexy, you know. You look on, you're you're waiting for the magic to happen. I imagine as a as a teenager, you know. Well, yeah, you want more. You yeah, want more than just have one, these expectations, one. right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, you want to get to the end result without doing the bit in the middle. That's it, yeah, yeah. You want to kick the ball and, and, and put it in the goal at the same <laughs> right. time. You know? And so, no, but the, he, the, the, the biggest and most fundamental music lesson that he ever taught me was that um, he played the note first and then he gave it to me and he went, right, play that note. And then I was just about to play it. He pulled, that, he pulled, he pulled the instrument away from me. When he pulled the instrument away from me, he went, "No, no, no, no! You're not, you're not, you're not playing the note." And I went, "What do you mean? He just told me to play the note, and we're trying to play." It. No, no, no! You're not playing the note. No, look how I do it. And then he and I, I listens and I looks at how he did it. Does it gives it me again? Try it again. Pulls the instrument away from me. That happened a few times, and then he said, "No, this is how you play a note. You hear it, you feel it, 
then you play it. And then he played a note again, gave it to me. And then he went, no, 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 stop. Go upstairs for one hour. One hour. Practice that one note. Hear it? Feel it. Play it. Then you come back downstairs. And if I can feel that you're playing that note, I'll give you another note. And that was it for me. Did your dad come from a musical background, like in his family? Or is your dad still plays? He doesn't play anymore. He doesn't play anymore. But yeah, my dad was on the stage at the age of three and a half. Wow. 1940. Occupied Holland. It was a cabaret act that my grandfather started. My grandfather was um, one of the first well-known pop musicians of the day in 1930s. At the time when the pressing of big glass vinyls were mm. first made and he did many recordings you know, released a lot of a lot of music. And my dad came along at the age of three and a half. He had him on the stage with him, with his sister. So it was the three it was a family act, a cabaret act, singing songs, playing accordion, dancing. And um then when the war broke out, Second World War broke out, they were working everywhere. Because you had to just for just to just to, just for bread, you know, just for a, a meal, a roof over your head. They're working everywhere, all the time throughout throughout the war. And they were playing in front of the Germans one night, the French the next night, the English the next night, and then the Americans, you know, came came towards the end. And it was, um, that was their life. But what my granddad did was that he would overhear certain Gestapo officers talking when they were playing in front of the Germans. And, you know, so he kind of acted like a spy and relayed that information back to goodies you know and so it, it kind of worked like that and they were found out they were caught two days before the end of the war and they spent the, the last two days in a big cattle train, freight train mm-hmm. that was that was empty and they, they they hid in there for two days ended up in the north of holland in Groningen, um on the last day of the war and they survived they made it and so they, my dad was a musician from the age of three and a half and then continued right up until I think it was the late 60s because he saw the whole invent of the radio, how it changed the industry of the cabaret scene. And then the TV came along and he got on TV with certain people and, you know, doing his thing. And, um, and then it just got out of hand. You know, the whole scene changed. So he had to, he had to change himself. That's a great story, man. One of the things you mentioned there when you were talking about uh, you, yourself as a teenager when you first picked it up, were you into music as a teenager at that point anyway? Was that something, you, you know, you were, you were talking about records or listening to the radio, was that mm. something you were into at the time yourself? I've always been very sensitive to music, always. Um, some of my earliest memories of music are being a toddler, walking down in the morning into the living room when I'm like three years old and my dad's there listening to Mingus or Count Basie really loud or Stan Kenton used to frighten the shit out of me. And I used to walk into the living room, his little toddly walking into the living room, wanting to sit with my dad and read a book about dinosaurs or whatever. And his music would be playing and I'd stand there and I'd be so scared. Well, it was too, it was so horrific. It was horrific for me. I remember Mingus used to frighten the shit out of me. I used to run out. I couldn't walk back into the living room. Then my dad bought me one day um, a vinyl 
around about the same time, bought me a vinyl, and it was the London Symphony Orchestra playing all the hits of movies of that time, like 1978, 1979. It was John Williams' music of Superman. It was Star Trek. It was, um, it was you know, Blake Seven, uh, Wonder Woman, you know, all those classics, mm. Hulk. And it was sort of symphonic music. And, and I used to listen to it, but I used to, my mum used to take me to school and back, and I used to be singing the counter lines that were going on in the music, in, the, in, in this classical music, the film music that I was hearing. And I'd always been really passionate about music ever since then, really, because it moved me and I was very sensitive to it. And so it was always a big part of, of what I had, to, I had to feed myself with from a very young age. And then I discovered that I should do it, you know, when I was about 14, I'd give it a go, you know. It was like without the army. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think you maybe got the right the right choice there. Well, I don't know. Sometimes I think if you would become a musician in the army, I might be a bit a bit better off. <laughs> <laughs> well, these two things are kind of polar opposites. Do you do you want to be a well disciplined musician, or would you rather be a bit more of a, you know, as to use a bit of a stereotype about musicians, or artists who are a bit more flexible or easygoing or less structured in some respects? As if you were in. Otherwise, if you were in the army, right, you know, you would be the opposite. You would be, uh, your shoes would be shinier for a start, I imagine. They'd be shinier, I'm sure, but I, I like that David Bowie a quote. I, I don't actually know it word by word, but I mean, it's like what David Bowie says, basically. He says, um, artists are dysfunctional. They are. And I believe that. They have to be to a certain extent. That's an artist, though. There's a difference between an instrumentalist and an artist, you know, and, and, uh, or, or a musician. I like to think of them as a musician, and um, an artist is a musician. And then we've got an, a musician who's an instrumentalist, and I think a musician sees their instrument as a tool to the art. It's just a tool to the art. And they're the creative sort of thinking, you know, musicians, whereas an, an instrumentalist is it's about the instrument. It's about, you know, and there's an art to that as well, but it's it's it's... it's the difference between the creativity, the full extent of one's creativity of where you want to stretch that as opposed to doing something really, really right. Yeah, David Bowie had his finger on the pulse in uh, many different ways. Mm. I think to be creative, you've, you've got to be dysfunctional. You've got to set yourself apart from a group mentality. You've got to be an independent thinker, I think. You know, you've got to be, you've not got to be afraid to just be who you are warts and all because it's from the mistakes that you you discover yourselves in as well True. you know yeah. tell us about that transition then from your your early days of playing that e note well i mean because my dad's a jazz fanatic he just had loads and loads of vinyls and that's all over that's what I was brought up on with him just jazz music i mean this was a thing for many many kids of our generation I would say I'm 50 I have to think how old I'm 53 so but that's where you kind of your formative years were going through your parents record collection or your dad's records right you would go and see what was what these covers were all about or you know these kind of hairstyles and the fashions of the time and all that you put these images and sounds together I know right how lucky have we been <laughs> it was the 70s you know the 80s so it was very much jazz, jazz, jazz and funk, you know, and Quint that beautiful golden Quincy Jones era as well, you know. 
Yeah, I mean, and Miles Davis, you know, when Miles Davis came out with, you know, Tutu, for instance. I've been brought up with it, but I didn't like it. And I knew I liked some of it, but I didn't like it. It was just bullshit to me. It was just, why is everyone playing all at the same time? <laughs> you know, it really was like that. And I was just, it's too much. It's too much all the time. And so I... I think this is a common thing for many people, though, to be honest with you. Yeah, this yeah, is, yeah. This does have that effect. Mm. And uh, maybe even personally speaking, you need to find your own likes and dislikes in jazz. It's taken me quite a while to to do that, but through experimentation or following people like yourself and see what you're playing or listening to, you're like, oh, this is not bad, actually. It's a bit more accessible, for choice of a better word. Yeah, and because of that, the accessibility of it, you know, I, I immediately... My dad said, hey, listen to these, these, these people, and one of them was Benny Goodman clarinet player Benny Goodman and he plays very melodically very groovy very bouncy very you know has a 1930s stump feel swing stump feel to his phrasing and he's a fantastic clarinetist you know classically trained as well and you know he was, he was fantastic Benny Goodman and, and I liked the groove of the music that he was playing I liked the groove it was live and it was melodic and so I got really into that and then when I moved on to the saxophone, which was about a year later, I discovered Stan Getz, who, talking about accessibility of the music, you know, Stan Getz is the most melodic player on the instrument and also the most heartfelt, well, not the most heartfelt, but one of the most heartfelt, sincerest, just saxophone sounds you can, you can get. He's so close to the voice. It's, it's like listening, he sings through the instrument. And I, I became fascinated, absolutely fascinated in the fact that that instrument can make all those different colors and sounds and emotions. And it connected, his playing connected with me. And I just had this burning desire to want to do, try and get somewhere, anywhere near that, understanding the instrument in that way and music through that way and myself through that way. And then when I was 17, I went to Leeds College of Music for three years, got my diploma, practiced my ass off. In the when I was twenty, I got to the Guildhall School of Music and Drama for from like the masters sort of thing for a year, and then that's it. When I was twenty one, I was out in the big wide world. But the thing is, I when I was in the Guildhall, I won the what was it the BBC Soloist Award, that national BBC Soloist Award of the year. I won that, and then I was also given the baton. Um, to teach in summer schools where, like everybody else who was teaching there was a good 20 years older than me, 15, 20 years older. And I was finding myself being really pushed in at the deep end, working with people who are very much more experienced than me in London, um, whereas all my other peers were sort of having, you know, doing the function gigs and stuff like that. I was, I was sort of working a lot um with people that were a lot higher than me and and in that in that realm and then when I was 25 I got a position as a professor at Trinity College of Music on the jazz department where I worked there for eight years and um and it just escalated really and I was playing with a lot of heavy players like Kenny Wheeler you know took me under his his wing a little bit you know I got an opportunity to play with so many wonderful like legends legends you know and so it just kind of escalated really
what kind of advice would you give to young up-and-coming musicians then uh, if, as they would come through the doors of the college? What advice I'm, would I give? Yeah, I'm sure they're so all at a, a particularly high level, right, to get to, to get to that, to get to music school. But what kind of real-life experience would you give them? A lot of them might be a wee bit wet behind the ears. What, what, what advice would I give to them? Yeah, well, then. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, well, that's the difference. Then was a different story to now. You've got a different breed of 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 generation now. Your shit, accept it. Don't fight what your teachers are telling you. Your shit. You've got to get a lot, lot better than you are, and just bite that bullet and rinse yourself of your ego. That's how you're going to learn. Leave that at the door, yeah. Leave that at the door. Your shit. Accept that you're shit and just be stupid because it, it's easy to ask questions when you're stupid. That's the best advice I could give any student going to college now. Back then, different story. What would you say the changes then between now and then? Well, the, like, there's a difference to, between the students that I was teaching back then and the mentality and the social conforms. Um, it's a, ge- a different generation. And uh, I mean, I don't like to generalize at the same time, but what I do see is a lot of this wokeness. It's uh, it's it's a far it's a far left liberalism that's occurred and spun out of control over what seems to be the past ten years now. And it's I'm no expert on this, but to me, it just appears to be like this generation that seems to have been sort of mollycoddled into a sense of false sense of security. And they have these expectations of the world now with finger pointing and blaming everything. And you can't offend anymore. You're not allowed to offend anymore. And everything is, an, is taken as offence. And so we have this cancel culture that's bred out of that, which I find to be very, very dangerous. Very dangerous thing, especially in education. Because this happens in education now, in higher education. We've got to please the students, so don't offend them. Because they're our income. It's like that. That's so, it in a nutshell. And, right? and that, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's a money making business as well. You know? It's a money making. Yeah. It's it's a capitalizing thing. So it's bullshit. That's why it's bullshit as well. So and so we're not allowed to offend the students. And it's that that is very very wrong, especially in higher education and especially in art in higher education, because then it become then we form this deluded mentality group mentality. And anyone that thinks differently from that is then going to feel restricted to expressing their different thoughts or different ideology or paradigms. And at that cost, is then going to have a risk to offend. And then people stop taking risks. And creativity and creative thinking and creative playing, music, any art form, it's all about that. It's like going back to what Bowie said, you know, you've got to kind of be dysfunctional. As a as as a person to to really, you know, em, explore who you are artistically, and for that you have to you have to allow yourself to be vulnerable, and to be vulnerable is also you know is a courage. You've got to set yourself apart from a group mentality. You've got to kind of switch yourself off from something in order to sit inside yourself, in order to come up with your own perspective on something, and then to express that. It's the expression of that. Your perception of life. If you're just, if your life is just going to be encased in a bubble, in a bubble mentality or a clique fad, whatever it is, or society, 
you're just going to hit the ceilings. It's the oppression of that. We got to please the student. We let. We can't offend them. Fuck that. When you were in the uh, working in colleges and so on, were you you were also playing at the same time. Mm, yeah, You've got yeah. to keep your chops up, right? So. Well, in order to play, in, the, in order to work in those colleges, you have to keep playing at the same time. You know, because that's one of the things that does attract the the students to the college. You know, they see you playing. You know, I was living in London at the time. You see you playing in Wales or you see you playing in Yorkshire or around the country or in South. Um, you know, these are the, these are your prospective students that come up to you after the gigs and they shake your hand and say, you know, what's it like at Trinity and what's it like at the, at the academy or, yeah, yeah, you got to keep playing. And at the moment then, you've, uh, you've since moved on from the – you still do teaching? I do, but just like this. Right, yeah, it's a bit more uh... – 21st century style teaching yeah. in that sense, right? It's just become uh, the new normal and all that. What's the scene like in Spain since you've been here a few years now? I don't know about Spain, but all I know is about is Valencia. Mm -hmm. What's the so, scene like in Valencia then, Russ? Is it a, a thriving scene? Is it you got to dig a niche out for yourself? When I was in England, it was I was just sort of, I felt like I was a bit shackled to jazz music. I love jazz music, you know, don't get me wrong, but uh, it's my discipline. But I just want to, you know, I like other different types of music I'd like to explore and get into as well. Mm. And so one of the things, the first things that I discovered in Valencia was how multicultural it is. It's, it's oof, different cultures that live here are so rich. Lots of different people from all around the world, South America a lot, and, and from, from North America and from the rest of Europe, you know, there's all these different cultures here and all these different musicians from, with all these different different feels of the beat and different ways of expressing themselves in, in the form of the blues, you know. I mean, like, there's, there's flamenco music here, which I've never been able to get involved in, but there's flamenco music here. It's, it's the, that is blues music. That, it's that, that, that essence is what I'm talking about, that, that passion, that, 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 that cry, that blues, you know. And then there's... You know, there's blues music, and then there's, there's Latin music, and then there's rock music, and there's there's funk music, there's soul, there's there's a there's pop scene, and there's there's and there's a jazz scene here. And I didn't come here for jazz. I came here to die, to be honest. I, ca I literally I came here to die. I came here to kill everything off. After 20 years, I just came here to die and just start afresh, just like musically. And jazz wasn't my main aim at all to get involved in the jazz scene here. It's a very small jazz scene here. And it's some really nice plays in it. Um, but I came here to explore all the other different types of music. And I've had some incredible just times here playing music that I wouldn't have had in the same way playing in England. And it's and that's why I'm here, to have those moments. And also to have this space for myself. This place gives me a space of no one sort of expects anything from me to be a certain thing, you know, like they did in England. I don't get that here. And, I, and I've got a space here to just sort of refine stuff of myself, of what I'm really into away from any outside stimulus that can influence me in this or that way. And um, that combined with these new musical experiences I'm having, it's just allowed me to be me more than ever. And so because of that, a whole different type of writing is coming up. I'm a composer as well. You know, I love composition. 
So that's a practice to me as much as a saxophone is. So a whole different way of writing is coming out of me that I'm just like, I would never have gone there in living in England. I just, because it's a different environment. You are responsive to your environment. Exactly, yeah. In an environment where there's all these, uh, uh, there's a kind of North African influence here as well. You're not too far away from uh, that part of the world too. Eh? So you've got this whole kind of melting pot of uh, vibrant and uh, somewhat exotic uh, styles and textures and everything. Totally, yeah. But the other thing is, you're asking me about the scene. Mm. The, scene the scene, it exists here like that because of all these different cultures, the different types of music and genres of music that you find here exists here like that because of the people. And the people here, the culture here in Valencia, it's just open. It, it, music is part of the fabric of life. It really is here. I can sit here on my balcony and at two o'clock in the morning, I'll have some teenage kids walking in the street or standing on the street corner and they'll start doing this. you know, just seeing their heads off all clapping, you know, for about 20 minutes and you got not one person hanging out the window going, hey, shut up! <laughs> <laughs> it's just, you know, so people love music here and they feel it, it. They feel music in a completely different way to how people feel music in England. So the cultural difference is polar opposite. Here, they feel the beat. They want to move. I think you, know? you, you can see that and hear that in flamenco music itself, though, right? Just that sheer rawness or passion that's connected between the two forces of dance and sound. And passion. Mm, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. What are your plans for the the year ahead? Since we're we're now in the middle of January twenty three, what are your plans for this year, Russ? Have you got some ideas what you would like to do? Or we thought you were telling me just a, a couple of moments ago about composing and, and things like that. My plans so far for musical plans that I've got a rock project <laughs> i've written a load of music like 10 pieces of music for a rock project which i'd like to get recorded so that is that is definitely happening one of the tracks has been recorded and released already but it's it's yeah I, i'm at the moment i'm sort of is it rock that. with vocals is it an instrumental yeah. project is it more of a prog kind of feel to it? give us a little less a snippet it's um prog rock thing. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, there's vocals on it and it's instrumental as well. It's, um, it's kind of, I, I just... It's, Are we going to know those time signatures? No. Oh, Are well, we, actually, there's one that goes into 7-4. <laughs> right, okay. What's well, not bad. But, I mean, it's... It would be rude it's, not to at yeah, some point. Yeah, not to. <laughs> well, yeah, was, yeah. you got to keep but, those I drummers mean, on the toes, man. <laughs> But yeah, I've got, I guess I'm, it's just influenced, it's rock music that's influenced from from our generation, I suppose. I mean, I'm kind of leaning on King Crimson mm -hmm. and Bowie, and uh, but also like, you know, that Manchester feel that came out in the late 80s, that sort of Manchester drumming feel that, you know, like the bands like Happy Smiths or. Yeah, well, like the like Happy Mondays. The Happy Mondays you know, are the Stone Roses, the, this know, type of thing. Stone Roses, and Oasis. And Spinal Carpets. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff, yeah. And last year I went to... You get great music festivals here. 
great music festivals, really good ones. And all the big acts come here, you know. And last year, I went, last summer, I went to a music festival and I saw Kasabian. You know, it was unbelievable. They were playing live. Was this you know. after they get rid of the singer? The singer had some yeah, yeah. personal issues. I can't remember exactly what I'm thinking. Was a That's right. Guy, but they get rid of him. So yeah. it's the guitar player that does the singing as well. That's like right. Yeah, yeah. Duties, yeah. From what I remember. Yeah, yeah. God, he's really good. He's really, really good. Really great voice. But yeah, it's um, so I'm 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 exploring that, and I'm getting into that's going to be a definite project for this year. Other than that, other than that, I'm just at the moment re completely um, re redesigning um, a new website for myself and putting all my albums out on Spotify and Amazon Music and and you know Apple Music and everywhere and and just sort of like yeah, doing all that new promotion stuff. As I, so, as I've spoken to other people in this podcast about that very thing Ross right it's you need all these different strings to your bow today than more than ever right you need to be a, a social media maybe not a social media strategist but you need to know how it works or you need to be consistent or you need to know about clipping things or yeah there's a whole myriad of stuff there I know it's um it's not just music anymore no it's not it's not this music anymore it's um it's it well it's not just music anymore though is it <laughs> but um, um, the, you know, music isn't seen the same today as it as it has been as it has done in in, in previous decades. I think music's you know? never been as disposable as it is today. That's it. It's it, music nowadays is is no different. It's a, it's a Tinder exercise for most people in society, and that's a difficult thing. I think this is what we're up against. It's um, people are. Uh, this is the other thing. Is like a lot of young musicians nowadays see this. You know, not to mention any genre in, in particular, but they get into music not so much for the depth of it and the soul of what music is, but for some kind of alluring attraction to what what got people to a any kind of celebrity status. And it's more about that. It's more about the sort of like the plasticness of that and the superficiality of that. And oh, we, you know, this person is is famous and they're a musician, but just. Fuck the fame aspect right. of them. Just be be into what they're doing musically so much that you, you you want to explore an artistic path to a journey in that. And then if you get you get any fame out of that, that's a byproduct. That's the byproduct. Do you know what I mean? Oh, definitely. And, and 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 if you and if you stick to then and if you reach a period of fame and you're known for doing something, be bold enough to break that away from that audience because that's what my heroes did like John Coltrane he, he did my favorite things or you know I love Supreme and then you know he could have just stuck doing that shit but the next album he did or a couple of albums after he's doing something other than that it's same with Bowie same with Miles Davis and I love these art or, or Wayne Shorter Joe Zawinor you know it's like I love the artists that get an audience and go yeah I'm not going to do that anymore because I feel like I'm going this way. All right, I'm going to lose 75% of my audience. Well, fuck it. That's just not why. <laughs> yeah, it's those kind of artists. It's it's like they're my heroes and 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 it, it people seem to have forgotten that. There's also this kind of um, the way people are managed or the way people are produced both in a studio sense and also in a stage sense, right? That, that there's more to lose, as it were, today. Maybe that's the way these musicians are aiming for well, it. Yeah, I mean... Whereas before, maybe most standard musicians, they were there for taking risks, or risks were there to be taken. It was just part of the journey. 
I don't know. I think, yeah, I, I think everybody just has a different agenda. And I think it's about being true to yourself, really, more than anything else. You know, I mean, there's, it's all about risk. Being an artist is all about risk. I, I remember when I, when I had this de- decision and choice to leave the UK to come to live here in Spain, everything was at risk. And I thought, I remember having that thought then thinking, this is what I do though. Every time I pick the instrument in my mouth and I'm, I'm, I'm play a solo, I have no idea what the next four bars are going to be. That is the risk I'm always taking. You know, improvisation is not about thought then. It's just about simply doing, watching yourself doing something based on something that your subconscious has been able to process. And then your spirit just comes out in a natural way. So any thought then that gets involved, it will hinder that natural sense of being. So don't think, just do. Rationalize it cognitively, sure, but just fucking do. See where it takes you. And so I think if you're always in that place, as much as you can be, your sense of home then, be, then resides not in the geographic location of where you are, but in the meaning that you give to things. Because then you're giving a true sense of yourself in the meaning of whatever you're doing artistically or whatever your profession may be, or life. Because then you have more life then to talk about. Because your experience of life then has more ups and downs and fluctuations. Because then you're living it. And because you're living it, you have more to feel, deeper to feel, instead of cognitively rationalizing something all the time. And so it's, you, you, you take more risks in general. It's no different than playing jazz music, but jazz, the whole jazz ideology, just put into life, into you. You practice it. And the, the, going back to the artists, it's like, you know, David Bowie left England. Everybody thinks David Bowie's very English, but he left England a long, long time. For a long, long time, went to America. And, but he was always English, you know? You could feel that in his music. And it didn't matter where he lived. Because he was his home, his sense of home was in the meaning that he gave to his life, in being as true as he could be, expressive as he could be. He explored jazz music, he explored electronica, he explored jazz, you know, rock, rock in, in the different levels of music. He, he was homogenous to his, to his environment and stimuli, but he, 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 he kept on exploring himself through the different characters that he'd be portraying as well throughout his life. And, and, and it was just like his home, his sense of home was in the meaning that he gave something. And that's where he found his happiness. Instead of somebody finding their happiness through something now in, that in, in, in trying to get as many likes as they can get. Don't find a meaning in looking for happiness. You, there is, that doesn't work. And that's something that I learned in England as well. You know, it's, 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 that's more prevalent for me to see now in hindsight because if if you, if you just search for happiness in something, you're never going to find it. You just, you're going to get the happiness out of the meaning that you put into something. If you're going to be true to life, that's it. That's a nice segue in there, Ross. Tell us about the, the piece you played yesterday or the day before. It was a, a piece you composed about the, one of your teachers. He'd recently I, passed away. Oh, yeah. That's my it first. was a, a really nice piece. Oh, the, thank you. That's, um, no, it's um, it's it's a it's a classic jazz standard called "I Remember You." I'll just you know I'm just getting back. As I, was, I was getting back into playing at the moment and getting back into practicing, and I just I, I like I like jazz standards like songs. You know, like "I Remember You," "Stella by Starlight." You know, Gershwin tunes. You know, just 
Cole Porter songs. I love those songs, you know. They still resonate today, right, with the, with yeah, the audience. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Hence the word and, classic. Um, you know, I like that tune, and I was just practising it. And um, at what I do at the end of a practice session is I usually record myself in some way, uh, uh, audio or video, to, because to listen to yourself back and to watch yourself back is, is, is you're being your own teacher. You can always listen to it. I always listen to everything back that I record at the end of a practice to know what I want and what I need to work on, what I don't want in my playing, everything, you know. And I'm, it's like studying yourself and being honest about it. And so I sometimes get a little video like this, just put it up, you know, just put it up. <laughs> and um, just to share, a few people like it, you know. And um, But I did this one for Harry, Harry College, who is my first teacher, my saxophone teacher, and, and um, very fond memories of him. And um, he, yeah, unfortunately passed away last week. It was a bit of a shock, you know. And so... Uh, I, I think you didn't improve, man. Ah, oh, <laughs> yeah, he's a good man. Tell us some of the other habits then you get into when you're in a practice routine, Russ. Is it more about of working out your kinks as you as the more you practice or have you uh, tell us a little bit i'll let you answer the question rather than me ramble on for five minutes about getting to the point you know tell us some good practice routine tips and tricks well i always practice what i'm going to play you know i never practice for the sake of practicing you know practice for the sake of so i always practice something to play so you know there's times when i don't have as many gigs as i'd like to and then there's times when I do have gigs, you know, more gigs than I'd like to. <laughs> and so... It's it, just the way of the life of a musician, and, uh, right? It's, it's feast or famine, man. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> I, so when there's times when I've got stuff to... I always like to be able to do my absolute best on every single thing that gig that I do, no matter what it is. You know, I've always got to try and find a way of doing something to my highest ability and, and my best on a performance without knowing that I'm intentionally doing that. But that's the practice that leads up to it, right? So it doesn't matter how many times I've played the same tune or something like that, I'll always look for a different way or, yeah, a different way to, to approach it, but knowing who I'm playing with as well, because that's sort of always going to affect it. So I'm either always practicing for something that I've got coming up, or if I don't have anything coming up, that's my downtime. I see that as my downtime and I, I practice for something that I want to I want to hear myself playing or I create a project for myself that I'd like to see myself playing in in a different way from what I've just done before. That's it basically. And and, and I'll I'll practice it like really really anally, you know, like really anally. I'll practice it very very slow for a very long time. I'll be I'll be you know combining that practice along with phrasing, sounds, um, tone, um, velocity, different energy levels, um, dynamics, and different interpretations of it, different stylistic interpretations of it. And then so once you start going through those different things, you're going through this whole process of um, reinforcing shit that you know in your playing. But also at the same time, you go through discovering different things and the things that you then discover, you explore them. And then once you've explored them, and you reinforce it again. You go around this cycle of discovery, exploration, reinforcing, discovery, exploration, reinforcing. So there's always that in everything, everything that I always do when I pick up my horn and practice. 
musical guilty pleasure. Hmm. I can give you another question. We can come back to it. I can't. I can't. Think of <laughs> I can't. I can't. Um, I literally don't know how to answer. I'm stumped. <laughs> That's amazing. I don't. I don't know what's guilty. I don't know what I feel guilty about listening to. No. I listen to all sorts. Everything from, like I was saying, from Kasabian to Charlie Parker to. Um, I mean, I love Stravinsky and, and Copeland and Prokofiev and Samuel Barber, you know. I love those composers, really do. But um, at the same time, I love I love funk music, you know. I love Miles Davis' mid-60s quartet, a uh, quintet, anything really. Mm. It's it's all music to me. The reverse of that or inverse? <laughs> the opposite? I'm on this Saturday, man. I've used all my vocabulary during the week. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Tell us someone you don't get then. Tell us someone you think there's maybe a bit too much hype behind or someone you don't get, you know, musically. I don't think that's very um, good idea that I mention any names because uh, they, I might know them. It could, be, it could be genres, for example, you know. There, genres. There, yeah, there could be, or production techniques or whatever it is, you know, it's, it's music related. Anything that is... It doesn't really matter about genre to me, but it's just, I don't know, it's just anything that's sort of passed off as something that is not, you know. And I see that a lot really with, I don't know, a younger generation is that there, there is incredible amount of PR that goes into something and sold as something that it's not. Um, and you get that in in teaching you know, a lot of teachers, and you get that in the music, you know. There's a lot of spin around music that it's, it's passed off for being something that's hip and new and fresh and, or, or, or you know, groundbreaking or in any way and, you know, new this, that and the other, and, and it's not. It's basically not. It's just another group with a different production angle and, and perhaps a lot of money put behind somebody a PR agent yeah, basically but... just or marketing expert saying look you give me the you give me a thousand or two thousand and I'll, I'll polish this shit for you you know I'll polish That's the it, turds and it's that anything to do with that whether it be in engineering production whether it be in it's like there's the teams band. of writers and stuff like that now or not even just writers but teams of writers stroke producers stroke uh, a, music, a musical team right behind an artist, which is not necessarily a new thing, but the way that it's manufactured it's the, it's the, or the way that it's presented is... It's dropped a level. It really has. And so I think that affects every genre. I think that affects every genre. It really does. And you see it, you know, it's taking away the substance of the depth of, of music away. In, in, in many regards. And, and my fear lies in the fact that this shit gets forgotten about or just gets put on a shelf. So I just like music that's real. From the heart. Real, from the heart. That's it. And I don't want to hear something that's been overly digitalized to it becoming, you know, to just to disguise the fact that somebody literally has perhaps some talent, but literally no fucking skill. They haven't worked on it. You know, other than just perhaps their aesthetic appeal, and they're using music as a medium for that sort of narcissistic sense of whatever it is. I think for me personally, does just on that kind of theme, there's, there seems to be a, a whole vacuum of 
good pop music now, or, or rather, there's not great pop music today. You know, it seems to, it's, it's still there, but under a different name or a different guise. I don't really recognise it anymore now. Whether that's just because it's me getting older, but I don't think. It, yeah, I am getting older, obviously, right? But it just doesn't sound like good pop music anymore. You know, not to my ears anyway. Well, I mean. I think in our generation, you know, maybe we were <laughs> so spoiled. Just, I don't know. Well, 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 our generation, you know, pop music, there were tunes. There was there was chord progression. The, um, the bands had different um, grooves, you know. Um, they had different feels. It was more exploratory, you know. I mean, we, you know, I remember pop music in my day. You know, there was I was born in seventy five, and you know, I mean, it was like it was Kate Bush. Or level forty-two, or Duran Duran, or you know the New Romantics, mm. and then at the same time you had um, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Cool and the Gang. Um, Michael Jackson was doing his thing with Thriller and building that up, and then there was you had a the whole, whole and, and thing the going on as well. Or there was there was the, uh, and yeah, yeah, metal and was, was still around, of course. Metal, you know, me- yeah. yeah, and then there's the metal thing, New and wave. rock. New wave, you know, and it was all these things, and then all of a sudden, sort of nineties hit, and it all got put into this funnel and turned into a sort of like plastic club music. Mm. It went from the disco to the clubs, and the club thing was completely different, and the music then needed to serve a different society. But you also got to re- you got to understand that music is the reflection of a society, and a society is going to be a reflection of its government. Tell us a favourite venue, uh, Russ, a venue you've played at, I'm sure, which there are there are of many, or uh, a venue where you like to go and see uh, acts, or both, whatever you like. In Valencia, yeah, definitely. To be honest, I like playing everywhere in Valencia because it's always so welcoming. You know, there's, there's always a nice audience. There's always a guaranteed audience here, no matter what. It's amazing. And so here it's difficult to sort of choose... Where it, I like playing, and I play different types of music as well, so it's got different different connotations. But um, like there's a there's a club here in Valencia called the Black Notes, and um, it's a good that's a good vibe. It's a blues and rock bar, and they play all different types of music down there. But and you know funk and stuff. It's a good hub. Yeah, it's a good hub. It's a really good hub, and um, I like. I, it's just. I guess I like playing in places where the vibe is nice, you know, where the vibe is nice and you feel comfortable to relax, just to really play and get, you know, get stuck in and sweat. <laughs> right. Because there you might know? be a misconception about amongst non-musicians that the bigger the stage, the better kind of thing, but that's not always necessarily the case, you know. It's, uh, as no, you were just no. saying, that it resonates with me quite well when you're quite close to the, the audience or, you know, you're a bit, you're in it together, right? You can see them enjoying it. Yeah, yeah. I, I love playing in those kind of um, those venues, and it's interesting that actually because you know, having played over my time, I've I've played more jazz clubs, you know, compared to other different types of clubs. I I, I have because and and it's very conservative. You, the people don't dance there, not allowed to. You know, a lot of these places, you're not allowed to talk either. You're not allowed to fart or do anything, to be honest. Sometimes you're not allowed to breathe. And so you look at the audience and they all sort of sit there and very conservative. And then, you know, and you're blowing your guts out and, and, you know, going, 
you know, sweating and everything and all this in front of an audience that's just sat there very conservative and very calmly. <laughs> and it's like... Something's it's, missing here, right? Yeah, yeah, generally. yeah. I, I, it's one of the, that's one of the things that I just wanted to get away from, shrug off, you know. So when I see an audience now and they're all stood up, brilliant, okay, and they're there, brilliant, okay, check, and then they all start moving and then they all start dancing right. and, then, and it's like, wow, this is great. It feels like you're giving something. Do you know what I mean? So you're it's, getting a spontaneous reaction to whatever it is you're you're performing. That's it, yeah. And I'm not used to that. I'm still not used to that. It's like every time I receive it, it's like bloody hell. <laughs> That's know. great, man. I think long long bait rain. Uh, Russ, tell us a go-to karaoke song. You must have one. Heroes. We're going the full version. Yeah. <laughs> right. You're you're up there for the five minutes. You're like, all right. Yeah, yeah. We could be heroes. Yeah. Classic. <laughs> The song, okay, there's a couple of choices. I'm going to try a new question. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try a new one. All right. The song that gets me going in the morning or the song I wish I had written. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> All right. Oh, God. <laughs> the thing is, I don't really have a song. I, I have a, mel- a tune, a melody. Mm. All right, I, I go along with the melody, but yeah. I don't really have a song. But... um. All right, this is gonna. This is so typical. Oh, God. I'm not. I'm. I'm sorry. I'm not. I might not be very normal about this. No, it's kind it's of fine, All right. The thing that I wish that I'd I'd written was um. It's this one. It's this one motive that's never ever left me ever, and it's. Uh, <laughs> it's. Um, I think it's, it's the main theme from a piece of music that a composer called Bill Conti wrote for his music of the Grand Canyon. Bill Conti and did I, the Rocky theme as well. That's I yeah, you right. know him. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Well, he wrote he wrote a piece of music for the Grand Canyon that I I first heard it when I was about eight years old. I've never been. I've always thought, God, I really want. I wish I could. If if I'd come up with that theme, I could just. I wish I'd come up with that theme. It's just beautiful. It's it's just, it's it's a Copeland like motive, and it's it's just incredible. And I yeah, I don't know why of all the pieces of music. I don't know. Sorry. That's a great answer, man. Because I, I don't think I've ever heard it. I might have heard it. I'm like, I'm going to go and listen to it later on, but it might come back to me. But then again, I might never have heard it. So thanks for sharing that. It's really bizarre. Yeah. Russ, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for sharing your Saturday lunchtime with me. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, thanks. For, it's, yeah, it's been fun. Where, before it. we finish up, man, where can we find you online? What's uh, a good place to check out your work? Well, if you type my full name, Russell Vandenberg, if you type that into um, your music provider, whatever it is, Spotify or Apple Music. Yeah, in Spotify. I shall put something. Any... I have to do this now. Everyone does this. So I'll put yeah, the links in the that. box. I'll put the appropriate links in the, the, the description for the podcast. It's, it, at the moment, it's there. I'm trying to get people just to listen to my stuff. And it's all very varied as well. It's not... It's it's very varied. One one thing's orchestral, the next thing is sort of electronic. Well, and yeah, the, next the one thing you shared is... me with the other day, the one that you recorded in yeah. Valencia, the one with that kind of nice kind of uh, yeah. Spanishy type artwork to it, with the orange and all the, that those kind yeah. of shades on it. Yeah, that's it. That's yeah, an orchestral. That was really nice. Yeah, that's a, that's an orchestral thing. That's a sweet. Mm. Valencia sketches. Yeah, that's, that um, that's yeah. orchestral. But then at, you know, at the same time, I've got it's there's vastly different stuff on my album list you know whatever it's called um and so it's all very different it's either sort of like 
it's just experimental, I suppose, in a way, but it's it's jazz based. I wouldn't call it jazz music though. No. Uh, but it's jazz influenced definitely mm. and it's it's just a combination of everything that I'm into. And so every album is very, very different. Well I look forward to sharing that with everyone and pointing them in your direction. Thank you. <laughs> Russ, all the best, man. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks for making it to the end of this episode of Can't Find My Way Home. Check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all those other places where you'll find podcasts. See you in the next one. Cheers. <laughs>